Where we came from is important. Where we are now is important. But where we're going to go, I think in some ways, is even more important. Welcome to this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Odessa, and I serve as a co-host mainly covering the greater Toronto area. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of hearing Nadia Yonan's story, a first-generation Canadian of Assyrian and Italian roots, and hearing about what life was like for her growing up. We also get to hear about her PhD work at the University of Toronto in ethnomusicology looking at Assyrian music. I learned so much from our conversation, and I think you will too. Now, before we get to our interview, just wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who's been messaging us, emailing us, nominating people. Thank you so much. You can continue doing so at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com. Your support for this podcast means so much. So if you like what Steve and I are doing, help us spread the word and rate us and review us on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast. Now, without further ado, Miss Nadia Yonan. My mother was born in Canada. Her parents were born in Italy and they migrated post-World War II to Toronto. It was a time when uh, southern Italy, where they come from, was ravaged really by World War II and there was a lot of impoverishment in that region. So they were part of that wave of Italian immigrants to Toronto. But then my mother was born here. My father was actually born in Iraq. He grew up in Baghdad and Kirkuk. And my grandparents came with their family on my Assyrian side in the late 1960s. So my father was relatively young. He was in his, his teen years. So he has lots of memories of Iraq that he talks to me about. But I think a lot of my knowledge about the Assyrian homeland came and continues to come you know, predominantly from my grandparents, who essentially did spend at least half of their lives there. So he came and they met at work, actually. The rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what it has been like growing up being both Italian and Assyrian? Well, there's a lot of good food. (laughs) (laughs) As I can imagine. (laughs) Um, You know, I love ravioli, but I love kubba. But there there are some differences as well. I think sound, maybe, and maybe I just pick up on this because I'm a musician, so I'm extra attuned, pun intended, to uh, the sounds around me. But like the Italian language and the Assyrian language sound very differently. You know, one is a, a Roman language the other one is a Semitic language so like my soundscapes were different also Italian music and Assyrian music are very different right Italian you have tarantellas and opera and Assyrian music is a lot of zurna and daula and rawe or Asher Bitsarigis love songs and so I kind of uh, have always felt that I have one foot in one world and one foot in another but but I'm comfortable in in both both feel like home I think that's largely again though because I grew up so close with my family on both sides and my parents and my grandparents have always encouraged me to embrace all aspects of my heritage, you know, whether it's being from the Middle East or from Europe, both are beautiful. I come from two amazing civilizations, the Romans and the Assyrians, and it's a rich history that I am proud to carry. And I'm just trying to think, you know, that's a really good question because for me, it's so innate, like what was Italian and what was Assyrian growing up that I don't really think about it. Mm-hmm. It just 
it just was all kind of one. Also, my parents took me to both churches. That was something interesting too, is, you know, I, I went to Catholic school. I grew up partially in the Catholic church, but I just as much went to the Assyrian church of the East. But even those sounds are different. So like the, the way that they sing in the Catholic church, the uh, Roman Catholic church is different than the church of the East. Honing in a little bit, growing up, Talk to me a little bit about your experiences within the Assyrian community and growing up. So again, I think a lot of my exposure to the Assyrian community was mostly through family, you know, weddings with Assyrian music. And, you know, I have vague memories of going to parties when I was young, but there was a period of time when I actually didn't really have that as part of my life. I actually became more involved with the Assyrian community in my undergraduate. So when I started university, I joined, you know, the student group, the Assyrian Chaldean Syriac student union and it taught me a part of my Assyrian history that I didn't learn from my family. I didn't actually know the history really of modern Assyrians. I didn't understand geographically even where we were from, how that works, you know, the Hakkadi Mountains, the highlands, the plains, how we're stretched across borders. I also didn't know how to dance Assyrian dances but I had a friend who actually took the time to teach me. We spent two days. One day we went to her house, one day we went to my house and she taught me all the basic dances, Chega, Shekhani, Gubare. Her name is Zina Hermes. Gotta do a shout out. Oh. Shout out to Zina. And that kind of gave me part of my Assyrian heritage back that I didn't even know I was missing because I didn't participate at parties. I didn't I didn't enjoy the dancing because I couldn't figure out the footwork. And you know, people get serious in the Chega line. Like nobody wants to dance beside somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Like if you're not shaking those shoulders right, if you're messing up your steps, like go to the end of the line. But what are you learning at the end of the line? So I couldn't navigate the politics of the Chigga line. So learning how to dance was a way of becoming more in- included in, in these types of events. And I actually love dancing. I really enjoy, you know, Shekhani and I, I like them all, but I, I really enjoy Shekhani. So yeah, just learning how to dance, I think, was a big part of, of understanding the cultural aspect of being a Syrian because there's the historical and the political and the, the religious as well. But music and dance are, are so much a part of culture. Yeah, so I became more involved in the community, participating, helping to organize actually community events, attending lectures with guest speakers. So I became more involved, I think, in my early, what is that, early 20s? And, you know, I don't know, somehow that led to me doing a PhD on Assyrians. So <laughs> it, was, it wasn't, a, it wasn't, it was a gradual process throughout, throughout my life. It wasn't like from, you know, from when I was a kid, I knew, yes, I love Assyrian stuff. I want to do, do a PhD in Assyrian stuff. It was It wasn't like that. It was more, I think, a growing process that has led me to where I am now. But the student group also, I have to say, participating for three of the Christmas concerts that we had there that were hosted by the uh, Center for Canadian Assyrian Relations. Those were really special events to me and being able to participate in those as a member of the stage band and just being on stage with so much, so many talented Assyrian performers and um, to be part of like that was kind of the first time anything like that had happened happened here in Toronto. So to be here in the infancy of what will hopefully lead to more events in the future was also um, actually really an honor for me to be able to do that. So my involvement in all things Assyrian with the Assyrian community here in Toronto has been sprinkled in a few different places and directions. But just bringing it all back, I think it all started really with my family and with my grandparents, Shmael and Ramzia in particular. Talk to me a little bit about what home looked like for you on an everyday basis? Well, I grew up in a very Italian neighborhood. 
And I went to an elementary school that was full of Italian kids. So I remember being a kid and thinking, why does everybody on the class list have an Italian last name? And, and mine is Yonan. Really, it was like Fiorello, Di Raposo, Di Giovanni, Mancini, blah, blah, blah. So these like and super then, Italian <laughs> That was super Italian. Some of the people even had Italian first names. Luca Pizzato, like, and then, you know, at the bottom of the list, because alphabetically speaking, I was always at the end too, Nadia Yonen. <laughs> so my weekdays were very Italian, actually, I think, <laughs> but my weekends were very Assyrian because growing up every weekend without fail was spent with my Assyrian grandparents. But, you know, at home, I'd hear my dad speaking Assyrian sometimes on the phone or to my mom. She speaks a little bit of Assyrian, but... Really, I was I was really exposed to both, but a lot of Italian by virtue of the neighborhood that I lived in. But you know what's really interesting now, since you mentioned this, is a lot of Assyrians have moved into this area that I've been in my whole life that's always been very Italian, you know, Woodbridge. A lot of Iraqis and uh, Assyrians, so particularly Assyrians from Iraq, live here now. And so I'll be at the store... And in one ear, I will hear Italian, and in the other, I'll hear Assyrian. And that didn't exist when I was a kid, but I hear it now, and I just think it is so cool. So just seeing that mix of, like, you know, on one street is St. Philip's Italian Bakery, and the next street over is Baghdad Market, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's really cool. So my neighborhood has changed, but it wasn't like that growing up. It was different. But I love it. Like, I love it now. I think it's just so interesting. You see both me. sides represented in your yeah. own neighborhood. I'm like, <laughs> I wish I had more of this. I honestly wish I had more of this when I was younger. Because you know what? When you're different than everybody else, it can be isolating sometimes. Did you feel that way? And up? sometimes I did feel isolated because, you know, I didn't have the Italian last name. And I sure I had Italian family, but I also had this other family that was totally different. Like they didn't watch soccer and, you know, cheer for Italy in the World Cup. Like what the heck was that? Right. So it's funny the things that you remember. And when I was in elementary school, we had uh, these two girls come and they were I was told that they were Iraqi, but I knew from their name that they were probably Assyrian and uh, they were teased. They were bullied by other people in my class and I remember like actually saying to one of the boys like we were maybe 12 years old at the time and he had known me all through childhood because we grew up together at the same school and I said to him I said why are you making fun of them you know I have the same background as them my name's Nadia Yonan I'm not Italian I'm like the Salwa sisters and he actually didn't even know what to say to me but I always remember that because I felt different. And then when those girls came and they were bullied for being different, it made me realize I wasn't off in the way that I was feeling. Like something about me didn't belong to, to that social milieu. And also, you know, kids can just be mean sometimes. Oh, yeah. But I always remember that. He was making fun of them for uh, using ululations. Like, you know, we go... So he was making fun of them about that. Not that they were even doing that in class. Like it was, I mean, this was context of like post 9-11, but it was just funny. It was like, I'd always slipped under the radar because these kids had just stoned me for so long. Mm -hmm. So I didn't always feel the same. I felt a little bit different, but there were good things about it too. So that's a long time ago. Do you feel that way now? No, but also, you know, half the people here are Assyrian. So <laughs> it's not the same as when I was 12 years old. Yeah. You know, I think also you grow up, you learn, you become more more knowledgeable about certain things and I don't feel that way now also you know getting more involved in the Assyrian community outside of just being with my family 
I think has taken away that feeling of isolation I had when I was younger living in a predominantly Italian neighborhood and you know like when I think of like my undergrad and my master's degree so much of my social life actually was with Assyrians so there was a bit of a transition. High school was different than elementary school. I'm, I went to, to a little bit of a different area. I went to an arts program actually, specialized arts program in high school and I had a United Nations of friends when I was there. Filipino, Indian, Chinese. It was very different but you know elementary school is very uh, singular mm-hmm. right? So and you mentioned that growing up you have you know you had your grandparents and did they play a big role in your identity growing up? Brati, you are a Syrian. Okay, Brati. Okay, Baba. Okay, yeah, okay. Is that what your my paternal gra- grandma would say? <laughs> my paternal grandfather. Oh, grandfather. My grandmother was a little bit more chill about it, but my, <laughs> my grandfather was very straightforward. And he was also very knowledgeable. My grandfather, you know, he was 90 when he passed away. And so he he saw Iraq. He I had him for so long. And the stories that I, I got from him about Assyrians and about Iraq are from an era that it's actually not easy to find people to speak with about. So sometimes he would talk to me about, you know, Assyrians in general, the Assyrian Empire or whatever. But actually, when I started to research more about Assyrians, I got more involved in Assyrian things in my undergrad. I started to ask him more about more recent Assyrian history and I remember I bought him a book that had all pictures of different places you know in northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey I'll show it to you after and I said I gave him a copy and I sat down with him and he had something to say to me about every single picture and I'm really glad that I had that opportunity to learn all you know so much to hear those stories from him because then you know we weren't talking about Ashurbani Pal. We were talking about things that are actually really much more closely connected to who we are today and to my own history, to your own history. Places that, you know, our great grandparents, even possibly our grandparents, might have walked. We're not removed by 32 generations. It's, you know, just a few. And you've traveled to Iraq, so probably some of the places that he was telling me about, you've even seen yourself. So I started to learn a different set of knowledge from him after that. It wasn't just Barati. You are a Syrian. Yeah. And sometimes, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, especially when we're younger, we want to know information, but we don't even know the right questions to ask to get the answers of what we're looking for. And so did you find that as you were growing up and as you started to become more involved with Assyrian matters or looking up Assyrian history, understanding Assyrian history more, that, you know, that led you to constantly going back and, and asking follow-up questions or asking their experience? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think also just sometimes when you're a child, like it's, you know, the things you care about are different. So my questions changed, but I also don't think as a child, I really had any questions, you know, just I was a Syrian when I walked into my Assyrian grandparents' house and that was it. You know, I ate kaba for dinner and there'd be music on in the background. And, you know, one of my earliest memories was they had a rug with a picture of Asher Bani Paul over the fireplace. So there was, there was iconic imagery around me that also I guess kind of exposed me to okay what is this being Assyrian as well as the food and the sounds but you know I didn't really start to ask questions about it until yeah I was much older. I do remember though that my grandfather taught me the Assyrian alphabet. I very clearly remember he had a a pad of yellow paper and he wrote out the alapids for me and we practiced it over and over again. And yeah, he gave me my letters. So I, I learned to write them better after on my own, but I think that's really special too that 
not that's not necessarily a question I asked, but it is part of who we are that that he gave to me. So, what did the Assyrian community look like growing up in the greater Toronto area? Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of church, was there an opportunity for Assyrians to gather? Were you finding yourself interacting with Assyrians or seeing Assyrians outside of family functions and outside of church? Yeah, there were parties, there were organizations. You know, Assyrian aid organization would have stuff. But I think we don't have that many organizations here. Even um, AXU, the student group, is relatively young. And, you know, a group like the Center for Canadian Assyrian Relations is only about three or four years old. Even Bitnahadeng Club in Hamilton is very new. So we didn't have as many organizations or different groups as, you know, say you would find in Chicago, for example. I think those are really starting to come about now. But I also think that just that could also be a population thing. There there was a mass wave of Assyrians who came in the late 90s, but then especially post-2003. So I think it takes time. And the community here was relatively small. When my parents met, there was only a few hundred Assyrians in Toronto. Oh. So it was late 70s. And I remember my, my uh, I think it was my mom or my aunt telling me, like, if there was a wedding at that time, so late 70s, early 80s, all of the Assyrians would be invited to the wedding. Just because, <laughs> you know, if it, you had a wedding of 400 people, that's who was here. Whether you knew them or not, they're Assyrian. They're coming to your wedding. And sometimes I joke with my mom. I I say to her, like, Mom, you know, 1977, there was, what, 250 Assyrians in Toronto and you happened to find one of them? (laughs) So, uh... Lucky her. Yeah, (laughs) you know, life is a really funny thing, right? Um, Because you do see a lot of young children right now coming from, um, you know, mixed cultural backgrounds, but in our generation, it's not as common. But at the time, really, like, there there was just such a small community here, and even in the 80s, it started to grow, but I, th- I don't think it was really till the late 90s, early 2000s that you started to see significant numbers in the thousands, and now it's probably in the tens of thousands. So, Mm-hmm. Did I see a lot of community activity? Yes, in a way, but a lot of it was church-related or a Syrian aid organization or, again, family events or weddings that, you know, were basically community events. But I see that slowly starting to change now, and I hope that uh, it continues to change in a positive direction moving forward because the population here is growing so much. Yeah. So you, let's fast forward a little. You talk about going into undergrad, mm-hmm. and you talk about being involved or getting involved with AXU. Mm-hmm. So did you come across <laughs> the table, saw an Assyrian flag, and you're like, wait a second? Yeah, that's actually what happened. Did I tell you that story? No. Oh well, that's what happened. Yeah, I was wa- I was walking down. It was actually the my music building. <laughs> yeah, I was just walking down the hallway one day, and they had a table, and it it really just had an Assyrian flag and a sign up sheet. <laughs> said okay why not so yeah I signed up and uh, in my early days of AXU the president of AXU at York at the time and president of AXU of Canada they really encouraged me to get more involved like actually they didn't really give me much of a choice Um, Nadia you're coming to this social event I'll pick you up at two o'clock and then you know sure enough they showed up at my house on a Syrian time so it wasn't exactly two (laughs) o'clock yeah I'm, I'm glad I joined because I found something that just fit that I didn't even realize I was really kind of missing and uh, again like you know a lot of my friends became people through the student group and in many ways I think I got through my master's degree actually because of some of my involvement with AXU and the people that I was working with at the time and because it gave me something else to kind of keep my mind on sure so yeah 
So talk to us a little bit about your major in undergrad and how that led you to your master's degree and then to my PhD. your PhD in process. Yeah. Okay, so hopefully this will be a little bit more easier to um, talk about than my crazy childhood. But my undergrad was actually in performance. So I studied saxophone performance and folk vocal stylings, particularly of the Balkans. So I was involved in the, you know, on one side, it's kind of like, you know, being Italian and a Syrian, I was, you know, half jazz uh, and also studying Balkan music. And I was in the R&B ensemble, but I was in the Balkan ensemble. And I even took Cuban music classes one year. So I was kind of all over the map, but it was very performance-based. But I did study jazz theory and jazz saxophone. But I love singing. So, and I don't think, you know, I'm not a Whitney Houston, but I found that my voice was particularly suited to some of the folk stylings of Balkan, Eastern European music. And being involved in a Balkan choir uh, really brought out an expression that I, I couldn't even really have through my saxophone. So it was a really positive experience and I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts specialized honors in music. So my undergraduate was performance vocal and saxophone and then my master's degree I have a master of arts in ethnomusicology so ethnomusicology is very basically the study of music in its cultural context so understanding music as a creation and an act of humans basically in all sorts of different contexts and cultures and places and I think because the reason for that is more than performing music, I've been interested in why people make music in the first place. Mm. So my master's degree was actually about Italian wind bands in Toronto. And I, you know, did some theoretical study on the Italian diaspora and how having the wind band at some of their events in the summertime was a significant act of nostalgia or connection to the homeland. Also, you know, at the end of the day, what did this music do for people? Did it make them feel good? The answer is yes, it did. <laughs> uh, so I studied... That's what I worked on for my master's degree, the significance of the wind band in the Italian festa tradition. And that was nice because it was kind of like a good segue into my instrumental background because I was working with a wind band. And so wind band is all wind instruments, trumpet, trombone, basically no strings, no violins, uh, cello, stuff like that. So on the one hand, I had the instrumental aspect of it and, and understanding the, the musical scores for the type of pieces that this band would play at the Italian events. But then on the other hand, there was the more anthropological side of understanding, okay, but what is the significance of the band to both this event, to these people? How does that significance actually change when you're in diaspora compared to the homeland? But on the side, I actually did a small project for another for one of my courses on diaspora and the Syriac Orthodox Church. And and how did you get into that? Well, there at the time I was only familiar with a little bit of literature that was available about music in the Syriac Orthodox Church. There isn't that much about scholarly literature about music in the Assyrian uh, Church of the East or the Chaldean Catholic Church. Although there are people who are starting to work on that right now, other scholars, and it's very exciting. And I hope that they publish books before me so that I can cite their wonderful knowledge in my book. But at the time, anyways, the, you know, when I was trying to research academic books about this, all that came up really was Syriac Orthodox stuff. And I thought, okay, well, 
I'll run with it. And I knew some people who attended Syriac, Syriac Orthodox Church um, because of my involvement with AXU. And so I actually interviewed a few people and put together a little paper about it. I was like, this is pretty interesting. And I took a course on a graduate seminar on music in the Middle East. And I actually uh, wrote a paper, it's a pretty simple paper now in hindsight compared to what I've written since, but about music in Mesopotamia. Again, not that much literature available on it. But the, I, I did manage to find out some interesting uh, stuff. I'm not sure if you know this, but the ancient uh, Assyrian-Akkadian word for singer is zamaru. No, I yeah, did not know so that. So one of what, zamara, one of our you know words for related to music is Akkadian actually. So that was pretty interesting, and so you know I was reading books that had images of ancient Assyrian reliefs, so with the the harps and the the drums. So that was interesting, but I was more interested in in the paper I did on the Syriac Orthodox um, music because I interviewed people and I really enjoyed talking to people. And yeah, I knew I wanted to do a PhD at the time, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do a PhD in. And that kind of was like, oh, I think I think there's a lot here. And I actually had a professor of mine, I was telling her, I said, I want to do a PhD. I don't know, maybe I should look at the role of certain instruments in Eastern European music. And she's like, why would you do that? She goes, you could go write a PhD about Assyrian music. And I don't know why I hadn't really thought about it till she just kind of put it out there. And uh, she goes, actually, you need to write a PhD about Assyrian music because there's not that much. And, you know, this is your community and this actually shouldn't even be a question. So go think about it and, you know, let me know how I can help you with your application. Yeah, so I think starting those little projects in my master's and continuing to be involved with AXU and more community events started to make me think about and actually learning how to dance. So connecting mm-hmm. to Assyrian music through dance. Yeah, led me to really start thinking about, okay, what's happening here with, with Assyrian popular music in particular? I really believe that we should not underestimate the value of the arts because people don't practice history and politics every day, but chances are they listen to their favorite song. My interest in popular music is because that's what... I think popular music transcends certain... Like, you wouldn't go listen to an opera every day, probably, but you listen to Top 40, whether you like it or not, whether it's in your car or you're in the waiting room of the doctor's office and it's just in the background. It's everywhere, right? That's what's called popular. So I had an interest in the idea of popular music, the literature on popular music and ethnomusicology, and so I thought, you know... Assyrians have popular music. Like, we have different types of music. There's folkloric music, such as Rawe. There's religious music, like, you know, the stuff that I read about the Syriac Orthodox Church or the hymns in the Church of the East and... But what about our Linda George and Asher Sergis and Sergon Yochenna? Like these, something's got to be said about these people. Like they're significant people in the community. Okay, maybe they're not necessarily politicians, although they can be very political. But it doesn't matter if you're from Toronto or Chicago or Sweden or Australia. Like everybody knows Asher Sergis. You don't even have to like him, but you know who he is. And chances are he's got at least one song that you like. So that was kind of like the early buds of thought about writing some sort of dissertation about this and and giving, I think, attention that should be due to the role of popular artists in our community. And that led you to your dissertation, which is on the topic of... I look at intersections of 
trauma and memory in Assyrian popular music and community, but also I look at issues of diaspora and transnationalism. So transnationalism, looking at how Assyrians communicate across state borders, right? Like trans and nationalism. So across different nation states, while being, you know, in many regards a stateless nation themselves so how music and dance connect people in diaspora but i feel like the assyrian situation is made a little bit more complicated because first of all the reality is that majority of assyrians do live in diaspora now so not only is there not a defined homeland in the sense of having a state but the number of assyrians in the homeland is relatively quite small compared to the number of Assyrians who live in diaspora. So how do Assyrians in this under this set of circumstances collectively and sometimes actually not collectively identify as as a people? I think a large part of any form of identity are your cultural practices. And so, you know, when you think of cultural practices, what's some of the first things that come to mind? Music, dance, food, religion can be part of that as well, language, because music and dance can be taken anywhere with you. When you have to leave all of your possessions behind, when you have to leave your home behind, when you have to, you know, quite literally just leave your property that's possibly been in your family for who knows how many generations behind, what do you take with you? You take your language, You take your music, you take your dance, you take your food. Those are the things that you can take with you. So when Assyrians have gone to so many different places and this is what they've brought with them, how does that actually manifest into some sort of idea of what it means to be Assyrian? Wow. I had never thought about that. What have you found within your studies so far for people who have migrated and Mm -hmm. wherever they are in their community and how they do take those on? Well, music in the sense of... And this is why I wanted to look at popular artists, actually. So let me just explain this. A lot of the bigger singers in our community, Asher Besedgis, Linda George, Sargon Yohanna, Sonia Adisho is actually a bit more up and coming. um, Australia, right? From Australia. These singers move. They, They really travel around. And some of them even go back and forth to Iraq. But they've been everywhere. I mean, you know, Linda goes to Europe a lot. She's been all over the US. She comes to Canada quite frequently. And they're they're popular figures in the community, right? But they also act as connections between different places in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite significant that, and this was part of my field where going to different sites and I saw Asher Pesetikas perform in Toronto and then I saw him perform in Arizona and I saw him perform at convention as well as just a party. I know he's actually based out of California, California yeah. and I'm going to be seeing him at a party in Michigan mm-hmm. next week. But, you know, I can tell you that at all of his parties that I've been to, he sings Dashtet Ninueh and people go crazy for it and it doesn't matter if they're in Arizona or Toronto. So I think popular artists are really important to consider when thinking about Assyrian music because they act as these these nodes that connect. But popular artists create these transnational ties that within this space It's the space that they create that becomes Assyria in a way. 
right? You know, like I've interviewed people and they've said, if I'm dancing somewhere and there are other Assyrians there dancing with me, then for me that space becomes an Assyria. But who's who's delineating those borders? It's the artists who are traveling from one location to another. So those ties are the borders of a stateless nation, if you want to think about it like that. So I think popular artists are very important to consider. Another finding I, I've come across is in my interviews, I ask people, you know, do you like dancing? How do you feel about dancing? And you know what's funny is like some people love dancing and some people say, I don't like dancing, but they all say, I love our Assyrian dances. So even if they don't like to dance themselves, there's some sort of appreciation or connection with the dance still. And something that a lot of people point out is how in our dances we hold hands. And so there's that idea of connection. And I think that's pretty amazing actually because you don't need to know the person next to you, but you can dance with them. So true. Chances are you're holding hands with someone we don't know. Yeah, like you can start in the finger line beside your friend, (laughs) but then by the end you don't know where anybody's going to end up, right? Who knows? Sometimes people get inspired and try to take it as shit to go. Okay, see you later. Right? Um, I'll stay right where I am. So, you know, but then also from different places, and I've had people say this to me, but, you know, I've experienced it myself doing multi-sided field work is you go somewhere and, you know, you're from Toronto and maybe the person next to you is from Arizona, but you know how to dance together. Sometimes there are slight differences, right? But it's kind of like dialects, how language changes. But for the most part, you can figure out each other's steps. And sometimes it is just pretty much exactly the same. So a lot of people talk about that, the connection in dance that is, you know, symbolic, but also actually like in your face because you're holding hands. It's, it's quite, it's not, it's not just symbolic. It's physical as well. And feels totally normal holding a hand of someone you don't know, but I mean, that's just a part of what it is. That comes up a lot. The hand holding when I, when I ask people about it. Yeah. And what do they say? That it makes you feel connected, that it gives you, like, I don't know, in a way, a sense of hope. Another thing about dances that people talk about a lot, and I've heard, not just in interviews, is, you know, connecting a Syrian popular dance. And See, dances are interesting because they they uh, walk the line between being folk and popular because, on the one hand, they're kind of like a folk tradition, but on the other, you dance these dances to you to pop songs, to Assyrian popular songs, mm. and everybody knows them, so mm. in a way they're popular in that sense. Mm. So they kind of connect the old and the new together. But something that a lot of people talk about is how the dances, or some of the dances like Shekhani, were you know, possibly originally from the warm-up of Assyrian warriors, and how dancing together would you know, warm them up for battle, but it would also bring them together as a unit right? So some people make that connection when they talk about holding hands and feeling united, but also feeling strong. I can see that connection. Yeah, it's actually, I think, very powerful in a way because when you've been forced to leave your home under horrible situations of continuous genocide, that I think can in a way be weakening. You might have feelings of being helpless. So it's kind of interesting to me how people can regain that strength or find a certain hope or a strength through through dancing, which is something that even though you have to leave somewhere, again, it's like something you take with you. So yeah, maybe giving people a sense of hope. I don't know, I'm still reviewing my interviews and putting my data together. I'm in data collection stage right now, and hopefully this will all turn into... Uh, 
a cohesive thesis that will make sense one day. But these are some of the things I'm thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. And these are great discoveries that are coming out of your interviews and the studies that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Growing up, did you listen to Assyrian music? Was that part of your life? I didn't myself actively listen to Assyrian music. I was all into the Spice Girls and stuff like that. (laughs) Girl power. But I was exposed to a lot of... I know I keep mentioning him, but, you know, he's kind of like the legend, Asher Besedgis, because my dad really likes Asher Besedgis. So probably that's one of the most memorable voices. Also a lot of Linda George and a lot of Zorna Daula. And are you, do you understand what they're saying? When Sometimes, they're... yeah. Sometimes. I'm not fluent, so I don't, uh, I don't catch everything. But, but that's how, a... how are you drawn? So I'm curious to know. Yeah. You know, as someone who may not know the definition word for word of what they're saying, but you're connected to the music. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess rhythm is a big part of it. But that also comes up with a lot of people I talk to. Like, what makes an Assyrian song Assyrian? Well, you know, the beat. The beat, like, the rhythm, like, you, the what you dance to. Also, okay, there's the melody, in terms of melody of instruments. But there's also the melody of a language. And although I am um, not fluent in Assyrian, though it's something I'm always working on, and I hope that we have improved resources and access to tools to teach future generations. The melody of the language, I can identify and I can hear. It's not the same as Arabic, for example. And I, you know, I really don't know any any Arabic. Shweya Arabi, that's about all I know. <laughs> More than I do. Shweya Arabi. Poco Italiano. But, so the, I... I don't know how to explain. That's a really good question and very good for my self-reflection. But I don't know how else to explain it. Like, I hear the melody of the language itself, not just the music. Sometimes the music is like, okay, it sounds Assyrian to me because I'm used to it. But, you know, with music, there's always musical exchange and cross-pollination between, you know, musics of other regions from that that Assyrians are surrounded by and but so that's why I don't like saying the melody itself too much of the music but really the language like hearing but not just the words that people are saying but hearing the the tonality of the language itself the flow of consonants oh you look at it much deeper than I think an, an average person would look into the music for sure yeah also like when I hear Arabic music I really don't understand anything but um you know I I enjoy um kofum for example there are different sounds in arabic and so it has beauty into itself but it's not i can hear the difference i don't know why this one always stands out to me right like i don't know to me that sounds so assyrian I don't know how to answer this question. You've asked me a good question, Odessa. Well, so so you're saying that you... So in your experience, you don't have to necessarily know the words to feel a connection to the music. I think it helps to know the words because especially songs that have been able to get translations of you appreciate differently. I presented at several conferences about the song Dashtet Nenoe. But I also think that 
there's the meaning of the words, but... And again, maybe this is just because of my background being a, an instrumental performer, but the, the sound of the language. I have a preference. I prefer Italian opera to German opera. Mm. I like the flow of the words better. Mm-hmm. That being said, it's very hard to understand anything in opera for me because of the, the notes that they sing some of the words on. But I can hear the, the role of the R's differently. We have a lot of napa sounds in, in Assyrian. Malpana, sepia. And sometimes we have the kh. Our sounds are quite lovely. Does music through the use of language help keep us intact? I would argue that in many ways it does because we don't have many ways that our language is disseminated widely, right? We don't have Assyrian newspapers that people read on a daily basis. We have limited news channels, A and B, for example. So if if you don't have those types of things, then, then how is your language being disseminated? And it is through music. So I definitely think that there is a connection with with music and language, especially because, you know, everybody talks about Zorna and Dawula, and Zorna and Dawula is great, but the reality is we're not the only groups of people who have Zorna and Dawula music. Zorna and Dawula is played all throughout the Middle East into Eastern Europe, North Africa, in variations of, you know, this type of frame drum and wind instrument. So maybe some of the melodies that we play on Zurna we identify as Assyrian, but the instruments is used widely. Whereas when you have Assyrian music with lyrics and it uses the language, it's one of the main purveyors of the language. Also, if you want to get into the whole language thing, most Assyrians can speak, but they don't know how to read and write. I think I'm kind of the weird odd exception in that I can read and write, but I can't speak fluently. There's I can, actually I many. Can, yeah. There's many who've gone through a Syrian language class. It is common. I think there are more resources to help you read and write. And I mean, alap is alap, right? Once you memorize what alap is, that's it. Move on to the next letter. Whereas lang- uh, spoken language is much more complex in the in the way that you speak and so I think that you know a lot of this is another issue though is that if you speak Assyrian you can understand the words you don't need to be able to read and write to do that whereas with something like print technology magazines newspapers or anything online now you know we live in a digital age now you know most most Assyrians that I know anyways they can't read and write so in that case actually what good would a newspaper be Mm. or a magazine and so I think I think what we need is uh, something that will connect, actually, the accessibility of learning conversational Assyrian and learning the how to read and write grammar, basically. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't really seen too much of that yet. It's usually one or the other, and a lot of the classes that I've attended here and there are focused on um, writing and language acquisition through, you know, learning vocabulary through writing. But if you think about it, when you learn how to speak as a child, Are you learning your ABCs at the same time that you're learning how to speak? You learn to speak first and then you learn your alphabet. Mm -hmm. But going back to music, music is, I think, one of the main purveyors of the Assyrian language. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that's powerful. I'm, I'm slowly learning that too. When I'm looking at other ethnic groups or other languages that have music in all different forms of genres, you know, you have... 
slow, you have pop, you have ones that are almost like house music, like it has like a house or techno or trance background in a way that if somebody who may not be one who enjoys slow romantic songs, but they enjoy really like upbeat songs can enjoy that. I'm seeing that though within Assyrian music, I don't see as much of a diversity in forms of mm -hmm. genres. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a show is on or a TV channel's on that's in Arabic or a, a Persian TV channel and they're playing different music videos. They're playing music where it's like, I may not understand the words, but the beats of them are stuff that I would hear on the radio. Yeah. And I could like really, I could really like jam mm -hmm. out to, but I don't see that mm -hmm. as much in Assyrian music. But we have people who mm -hmm. are talented and can do that. Why do you think that is? This is not the first time I've heard this thought expressed. You'd be surprised how much comes up. The lack of variety in Assyrian music, like why don't we have, you know, Assyrian punk or Assyrian rap? It's kind of like, what is the Assyrian pop song? It's what comes to mind. It's, you know, well, actually, let me flip the tables. Like, okay, if I say Assyrian pop song, What's the first thing that pops in your Honestly, head? Honestly, what comes to my mind is like 90s Linda George. Yeah, because those songs are, they're pop in the sense that actually I've never seen someone dance like line dances to that song in particular. It's kind of just like individual dancing in the same way that if an Assyrian song came on that had like a house background, you know, yeah. house music. Well, you, you wouldn't dance it in a line dance. You dance it, like, individually. So, yeah, that's kind of what comes to my mind. That's yeah. in the 90s. Yeah. And that's just pop, you know? I don't... I, I have no answer for this. It's a great question. It's um, something that comes up a lot with people. I, it's not my place to answer it in terms of my research. Like, I can maybe speak to it just as an Assyrian. Like, this is not Nadia, the, the academic or a scholar or anything like that. Um, is it something you've observed, though? Is it, is I've it... observed, yeah, of course. Like, why, like I said, like, why don't we have Assyrian rap music? I, and I don't know why. I think, you know, it could be because... I hate making excuses, so I don't mean this as an excuse, but, you know, Assyrians have always just been in a constant wave of upheaval, right? Okay, and then as soon as, like, one wave kind of settles itself, something else happens, and there's another wave of, you know, migration, and it's always kind of like, I'm not the first person to say this, but it's almost like a constant survival and not a a thriving mode and so I don't know if it's that because I believe the innovation the creativity is there we have a lot of like really talented and creative creative people in our community but you know they're not necessarily maybe even um, using those talents for you know necessarily writing an Assyrian rap song I don't know why I keep thinking of rap music I'd, I'd, I'd love Assyrian rap music I've heard a couple of songs there's yeah, there's a there's a few artists, but you know, just one song or two. But it's not like ma it's not it's not mainstream. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's not mainstream. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it's that the support isn't there for for this type of thing. Maybe because that's not what people are thinking of. Maybe people are just trying to think of you know how to survive, how to succeed in a new society. Because you, see, I mean, how many people do you know that are like third generation American Assyrian or Canadian Assyrian? Everybody, like I'm first gen. I'm first. Well, I, I'm always confused about how this works, but my father was not born here. You are first generation. I am first, first generation born. Canadian. Right. Yeah. And um, we're just, 
I, I don't know. Well, let it be known to the listeners if any of you have an interest in music and especially in the, you know, variation of genres, especially those that we don't hear, like rap, like, you know, R&B. house music, like even having the beats, like, you know, Assyrian beats that are sort of used as a background for a song or like um, just a remix or just taking a a clip or something from it. That'd be really cool. There's actually um, a, a house group called A Tribe Called Red and nice. they do electric powwow music. So they're Aboriginal First Nations from Canada and they've got, they incorporate like powwow singing. I think, I don't know, what do you think about this? Is that maybe another reason why there's not as much variety in Assyrian music is because not changing music is kind of a way of holding on to, to, to identity in a way, like too much change, then maybe you lose your identity. And because we don't have a reference state right like we can talk about a homeland but again the reality is that assyrians do predominantly live in diaspora there is no current assyrian state and it is difficult seeking autonomy in a region that is extremely volatile right nothing's impossible but it's just very difficult yeah so when your reference is different when your reference point is different maybe i don't know that does start to affect your artistic practices or your cultural practices and you don't change things as a way of holding on to what you feel like you don't have which you know I think a big thing for the Assyrians is a homeland like we have a homeland but there's no state there's there's uh, security is difficult it's a volatile area Um, and so maybe like just keeping stuff like music the same as a way of establishing permanence when there's so much instability and uncertainty where you wish there could be a permanence. I think that's totally valid, and I think you you're, you definitely hit on a good point. I also think, though, that for those... I'm not saying that that's right sure, or wrong, sure. by the way. I'm yeah, just, yeah, like, yeah. brainstorming, you know, like, yeah. why could that be? Yeah. And I think that, they, I mean, that music has a role in our in our community. I also think that people who, you know, are born in the diaspora who may not find an interest in our music and our current music that we have right now, that that could really be another form of connection for them. I can, I can name, you know, a ton or think of a ton of people in my mind who just don't have an interest. I mean, I was one of them a few years ago, just didn't have an interest in the same music. Now that I can especially understand the words and especially older music, I, I really appreciate more. But man, it would be so cool to have just different kinds of, of uh, genres of music, Assyrian music that are being produced. But Nadia, what do you hope to do with, with your work? Once you're done with your PhD, what is your goal? That's an excellent question. It's actually the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to continue teaching in the university. I would really like to publish a book about Assyrian popular music. It wouldn't just be about the music, it'd also be about the people. Because again, what I look at isn't just the music itself, it's how people use music, how people create music. So it would tie into also the history of Assyrians. And by history, I mean, you know, just to give you an an idea of a time frame, probably about Seifo till now, so 1915 to present day. That's mm-hmm. generally the, the time frame that I work within. Mm-hmm. So a book would be lovely. My dream is to actually have a book with cover art by Paul Batu. Oh yeah, he's got amazing yeah, art. Yeah, that, that's I think 
part of the dream. <laughs> but other than that, I would also be open to working in other related sectors, such as the heritage and culture sector of the government. But I do like the university in that I really enjoy teaching and working with university students because I enjoy the discussion, I like the critical thinking. And you know, I've taught a few courses about uh, world music for non-music majors and exposing people to different ways of thinking about expressive culture that maybe they otherwise might not be in tune to. And, you know, just as an example, I taught a class and we had uh, one day where we talked about minorities and music and I used the Assyrians as a case study. And that was a lot of fun because I was making them all watch Ashur Besarigas perform Dashtat in Iraq. And then, you know, we talked about it and we talked how cool is that <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun you know a room full of how many people i don't know probably that class was about 80 oh, yeah amazing. that was pretty cool and then you know on their exam i give them a question about it and i have all these people writing about the assyrians and diaspora and homeland and persecution and how it's cool. like really cool actually that to transfer like so my research into the classroom like that and, you know, the Assyrians are one community, but then contextualizing them in minority studies, but also, you know, for example, even just understanding the Middle East as a multicultural mosaic, it's often seen as this monolithic Arab Islamic world, but but that's not necessarily the case. And so just making people think differently about it and exposing them to, I guess, new or different ways of understanding certain parts of the world that maybe they otherwise might not be exposed to. And if I understand correctly, the Assyrian American National Federation is going to be having a policy conference in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and you are one of the speakers. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, that's be, exciting. So what speaking. will you be speaking about? I'm on a panel about preserving cultural heritage, and I'm actually waiting to find out who's going to be on my panel so I can gauge like, you know, what the conversation will be. And that's something I would like to talk to, whether it's at this conference or, or elsewhere, is oftentimes we use the language of preservation, preserving cultural heritage. And I would be interested in starting to move towards a different terminology, continuing Assyrian heritage, continuation of Assyrian heritage, education or educating people about Assyrian heritage. To be honest, to me, like preservation, we preserve things in a museum. You preserve preserve a mummy. You preserve an ancient artifact. But mm-hmm. Assyrians are alive. And uh, we talk about continuity. Okay, but then... So I think there's kind of a juxtaposition there between preservation and continuity. So I would be interested in opening up a dialogue about continuation of Assyrian heritage rather than preservation. Because we're not being preserved. We're alive and, and we're continuing or at least that's you know that's the goal that's why we have conferences and that's why we have conventions and Assyrian podcasts and so where we came from is important where we are now is important but where we're going to go I think in some ways is even more important so we'll see how it all transpires I am very excited for the event there's a lot of very cool speakers coming and people whose work I've read but never met. So I'm, you know, for example, Simo Parpola. So I'm just very grateful for the opportunity to be speaking there. And all I can say is I'll do my best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the work that you are doing is invaluable. I mean, we need more people out there that are really 
going and pursuing higher education with a focus on anything really Assyrian. And so being able to understand a little bit about what it is that you're doing, the dissertation that you're working on, and that as you're speaking about it, we don't have much information on, much research on. And so the work that you are doing is going to be critical for that, for the present and for the future. When others are coming in and looking at that and they have some research or more research to reference, really. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. 